I thank you for listening to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Do you find yourself praying and asking for Jesus to come soon and relieve us from this constantly changing world and bring some stability? That's a good prayer. And as a believer, that's also being a good citizen because of our view of the gospel. Last time we learned that believers have what is described as a dual citizenship, primarily in heaven with our Lord and also here in America. John Fonville tells us that dual citizenship and the gospel bring civility to our lives and those around us. Let's listen now to a teaching called The Gospel's Civilizing Effect on an Uncivilized World. Here's part two. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul begins with civil obedience because these young believers in Crete found themselves swayed by the cultural practices of the broader Cretan society. All right, so you have to go back and do a little bit of first century historical digging to look at this first century Cretan society and listen to how uh, one New Testament scholar talks about what this Cretan society was like for these, these young believers to live in. And this is what Polybius wrote about first century Cretan culture. He says, it is impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous. <laughs> He says, and it is impossible to find public policy more unjust than in Crete, end quote. This insubordinate culture was having a profound influence on these young believers in the church, teaching them to be insubordinate. Paul, in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, he has already mentioned the insubordinate character of these false Jewish teachers. And he says, but these false Jewish teachers who are very insubordinate to the Roman government, he says in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, they have had destructive effects upon Cretan households. And so this, this, this sin of insubordination, breaking the fifth commandment, it was a huge problem in these emerging young churches that Paul had planted in this insubordinate, unjust society in Crete. Now, we'll come back to the fifth commandment next week because like the emerging Cretan churches, breaking the fifth commandment is a problem in our day as well. Not only in the broader culture in which we live, but it's a problem within the church itself. What is the fifth commandment and, and what does it require? Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism uh, sums it up. What does God require in the fifth commandment? And this is, this is a great answer. He says that I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my mother and father. Uh, and that I show it to all in authority over me. Submit myself with due obedience to all all their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their infirmities, their weaknesses, because it is God's will to govern us by their hand. We'll come back to this next week, but that's a hard pill to swallow in our culture. And listen, it was a very hard pill to swallow in first century Crete. In fact, it was revolutionary to hear this. And so this, this presence of a large Jewish population in Crete was well documented by historians. And this was perhaps uh, why there were perhaps many Jews in Crete that were in continual uproar and rebellion and insubordination against the Roman government. 
And it was impacting and influencing this young church, these young believers, these churches in Crete that Paul had planted. And he feared that these churches might become embroiled in political agitation and bring the gospel under suspicion to their unbelieving neighbors. Uh, let me just give you some examples of what it would have been like for a first century Christian to say that Jesus was kurios, that is Lord. Because uh, Roman government authorities would, would, would have wrongly viewed the gospel as containing anti-emperor language. For the gospel proclaimed that Jesus, not Caesar, is the true God and Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13, those are titles given to Caesar. Paul in chapter 2, verse 13, gives those titles to Jesus. Listen to how this New Testament scholar describes the Roman world that Paul is writing to. He says, In the East, it had long been customary to render divine honors to the king. The house of Antiochus encouraged this by adopting titles like Epiphanes, God manifest. And having coinage struck of themselves arrayed in the radiant crown of Zeus. And this, this New Testament scholar goes on to talk about when Christians refused to take part in the imperial cult worship of Caesar. He says this, he says, Christians accordingly appeared to be most dangerous people in society. Why? Because they would not share in this basic pledge of loyalty to the state. Of course, on their principles, they could not. Jesus had laid the foundation of the distinction between the realm of God and Caesar in his answer about the tribute money. And his followers pursued this line of demarcation. Caesar, Caesar, he says, should be honored but not worshipped. They would not bow the knee or sprinkle incense to Caesar. How could they? They belonged to another son of God, a title given to Caesar. They owed allegiance to another commander, a title, title given to Caesar. They were securely related to God through another Pontifus Maximus, a chief priest. Both Christ and Caesar claim world dominion. A Christian cannot consistently say Caesar is Lord if he professed Jesus is Lord. The reason is obvious enough and compelling, but the impression given cannot be one but of political disloyalty. So as Pliny's letter to Trajan makes plain when a man persisted in refusing to make the customary gesture to the traditional gods and the imperial statue... Then he was clearly actionable for criminal obstinacy. This was, to Pliny's experience and legal mind, imminent justification for the death penalty. So back then, to believe the gospel and to make this statement in public, in society, Jesus is Lord, was to make uh, imminent justification for the death penalty. So the Apostle Paul was concerned in under, about underscoring the importance of obedience to the state to dispel any possible misconception that the gospel provided a license for believers in Crete to rebel and disobey the governing authorities. Are you beginning to see the context now? They're not going to bow the knee to Caesar. They'll honor Caesar and they will obey the government, but not at the expense of refusing to call Jesus Lord versus Caesar is Lord. Do you understand? And so believers, Paul said, look, the way I want you to do this is I want you to live such 
upright, outstanding lives as model citizens that when they think you are saying Jesus is Lord and they think that you're being disloyal to the state, they'll look at how you conduct yourself in society and say, the Christians make Crete better. Why? Because Paul knew this. Remember, these were very young churches that were just planted. They were just getting started, church plants. And Paul didn't want these church plants to be misconstrued as rebellious citizens who are inciting rebellion against Rome. And because why? He knew this. Any attempt to rebel against Roman government was powerfully put down. And these little churches would have just been snuffed out just like that. And if this happened, these emerging churches in Crete would have crippled their evangelistic mission to this uncivil island. And so Paul says, remember, Cretans, you are citizens of Christ's kingdom, but you're also citizens of the civil kingdom. Therefore, you have a responsibility to obey civil authorities. These directives for civil obedience raise many questions, particularly for Americans who live in a democratic republic. We are very, very different from these first century believers. So we'll look at this next week on how this, how the fifth commandment applies to our situation. But what I want you to see this morning is this, because this is very important for you to get. We have to understand that Christ's kingdom currently, of which the church is the community of Christ's kingdom on earth now, is a kingdom of grace. That is vital for you to get that. Christ's disciples failed to understand this in his first coming. For example, when John the Baptist was put in prison, he became dismayed about Christ's coming because he was like, why is Jesus not using his power to bring judgment upon the Roman government? He thought Jesus was bringing back the so-called glory days of Joshua, the holy wars of the Israelite conquest of the promised land. And what John failed to understand is that Jesus had very clearly announced in the Sermon on the Mount a regime change. He had announced in Matthew chapter 5 that, that uh, the, the old covenant mediated by Moses, the Mosaic covenant, had shifted now to the one that Jesus himself mediates as Abraham's greater seed, the new covenant. And John failed to realize that the transition from promise type to fulfillment reality had taken place, that the, the Old Testament events under the old covenant, Joshua's conquest of Canaan, right? Those were but types and shadowy pictures of further events yet to come. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through following. John chapter 1, verse 14, John chapter 2, verse 19, John tells us clearly in his gospel that the tabernacle and temple were types and shadows of Christ. Christ is the temple. Jesus said to the Jews, he says, destroy this temple, and he says that in three days I will raise it up. You see, all the shadows and types of Christ vanished. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, he says, became obsolete when Christ appeared in his first coming. Consequently, listen, there's no room for the shadows and types under the gospel. As the author of Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. John, like the crowds at Jesus' triumphal entry, was looking for a conquering political Messiah rather than a spiritual Messiah. 
And so in his dismay, when he was put in prison, in this Roman prison, John, in Luke chapter 7, sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John was completely confused. And Luke tells us that Jesus answered these two men that John sent. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. He says, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one, John, who is not offended by me. Jesus sends the two disciples back to John as witnesses of the Messianic miracles that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Jesus was referring to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6, and chapter 61, verse 1, in his response to these two men. Go tell John, I'm fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. I am the Messiah, but you just missed the right one. Jesus was telling them, trust me to bring, tell John to trust me to bring in my kingdom in my way. You see, if Jesus had brought judgment, he could not have spared Herod or any sinner. He couldn't have even spared doubting John in prison. This is what the New Testament scholar Edmund Clowney says. He says, Jesus came in the flesh not to bring the judgment, but to bear it. Not to slay with the sword of his lips, but to receive the nails in his hands and the spear thrust in his side. He says that no other way could his kingdom come and God's will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom established by grace must be advanced by grace then and consummated in glory. Not by political power, but by the power of the spirit is the gospel carried to the nations. You see, look, Armed with might cannot advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus taught Peter in John chapter 18, verse 11. He says, Peter, put your sword into a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus told Pilate as he stood before Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And even after his resurrection, Christ's disciples still misunderstood the truth that God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when the disciples are assembled on the Mount of Olives, they ask Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is the glory of Joshua and Solomon, is it coming now? You know, are we going to be the secretaries of defense? And are we going to be the secretaries of war? Are we going to be sitting on your right hand? Is it coming now? And so the disciples wrongly concluded from his resurrection and the promise of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that the Messianic era had dawned and the final salvation of Israel was imminent. They misunderstood it. They were still at this point expecting the restoration of a military and political kingdom that would drive out the Roman armies and restore the national sovereignty to Israel as had happened numerous times throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus corrects them, and he doesn't, not by rejecting their question, but he tells them that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, not to triumph over the Roman government, but to spread the gospel throughout the whole world. As Gafcon says, as we prayed this morning, 
Jesus is sending them by the power of the Spirit in the church to proclaim Christ faithfully to the nations. And so in his first coming, Jesus did not come to establish a political utopia by the sword. He came to bring salvation. But in his second coming, listen carefully, Jesus will usher in a new world of peace and perfect justice when he returns in glory. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. So uh, as we finish this morning, just turn quickly with me to Psalm 96. And listen to what the psalmist says about this day when Jesus comes in his second coming. Let's just look very quickly at verses 10 through 13. The psalmist says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He says, look, indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. And all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he is coming. Did you hear that? He is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 96 is speaking about the reign of God as king, who ushers in his righteous judgment among the nations of the earth. Verse 10, look at it as a high point of the psalm. And this is the high point of the entire psalm, verse 10, the first part. He says, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And the verses that follow that high point are simply a commentary in response to this statement that the Lord reigns. The psalmist tells us that the Lord rules human history right now. He reigns. And yet, it is difficult to see this fact in light of all the unrighteousness and violence and destruction and injustice that we see not only in our country, but in countries all over the world. As I said, this is GAFCON Sunday. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are being slaughtered as we speak. The scale and the severity of the violent atrocities and unfolding genocide against Christians, many of fellow Gafcon Anglicans in Nigeria, which takes place on a near daily basis in central Nigeria, is utterly heartbreaking. And the psalmist says to them, the Lord reigns. And you look at something like that and you say, it's very difficult to see that fact. Yet despite these challenging realities, the psalmist states that God, the king, will come to rule the nations of the earth in perfect righteousness in the future. And the psalmist calls us to look forward to the day when God, the king, will judge the nations of the earth with equity and he will rule in perfect righteousness. Every wrong, the psalmist says, will be made right. Every injustice will be made met with perfect justice. Every one of God's people since Adam and Eve will be vindicated on that day. And I want you to notice the striking truth about this psalm and the way that it looks forward to God's coming judgment. Look at verses 11 through 13. How have you been taught to think about Jesus's return in judgment? Most of you fear Jesus is coming back, and I'm scared to death for that day, right? 
No. The striking thing about this, the psalmist says, is that God's people look forward to this coming judgment with joy. Listen to how James Boyce, uh, quoting C.S. Lewis, describes it. He says, C.S. Lewis points out that ancients lived in a world where judges usually needed to be bribed and right judgment was exceedingly hard to come by, especially for the weak and poor and disadvantaged persons. In such a climate, the disadvantaged did not fear judgment. They longed for it. Do you see that? The despised and the poor and the weak, they didn't fear judgment The disadvantaged longed for it because judgment meant a day when evil would be punished and those who did the right things would be vindicated. This is what Daniel gives us, a picture of Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the son of man, is coming to conquer all the kingdoms of the earth. I saw the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title that he gave to himself, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the father, and was presented before him. And to him, Jesus was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed so listen anybody who has trouble with Joshua and the conquest of the promised land which were types and shadows previews of coming attractions they're going to have a huge problem with Jesus when he returns because if you think the conquest of the promised land by Joshua looked bad, it pales in significance to when the Lord who reigns returns and brings his justice to this earth. So what do we do in the meantime? We live in between Jesus' first and second coming. Now the kingdom of God, his reign and his rule, how does it come? It comes in the church through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus, Graham Goldsworthy says, exercises his kingly power through the scepter of his preached gospel. We're living in the new covenant era, a day of grace and salvation, not the old covenant. And in this time, which is the intermission between the two advents of Christ, his first coming in humility and salvation, his second coming in judgment and final deliverance, what is the Holy Spirit doing? He is, he is taking the gospel and he's uniting people from every tribe and language and people and nation to be the true Israel. He's uniting them to Jesus Christ. And so the day in which we live is the day of salvation, not a day of judgment. But the psalmist tells us there is a day coming, for he is coming. Listen to that. He is coming. So the church is not geopolitical. It doesn't have a military. Believers and unbelievers alike submit to an appeal to civil rulers as persecuted witnesses of Christ, not as victorious conquering rulers of earthly cities. But we do this with faith, looking forward to the future, to that joyful day when the psalmist says that God, the great king, who now reigns, will come to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. He is coming. And concerning that day, listen to what John says as we finish in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 7. He says, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, God's people together, 
Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. He is coming. And that is a reason to rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have appointed this day as a day of salvation so that people like us who deserve nothing but judgment receive nothing but grace and mercy. And I pray that you would help us to model good citizenship in a society that is very unruly and uncivil so that the difference in how we live can attract people to you and to the gospel and be an opportunity to share with people the saving grace that we've also received. And we thank you that we have the promise of the consummation of your gospel, that you are coming. You are coming to judge the peoples with equity and the nations with righteousness. And this is our hope. And we, we pray as the apostle John prayed in Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and vindicate your people and consummate your gospel. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Gospel's Civilizing Effect on an Uncivilized World, Part 2. More from the Models of Good Citizenship series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time.